This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Women Judges. NAWJ's mission is to promote the judicial role of protecting the rights of individuals under the rule of law through strong, committed, diverse judicial leadership, fairness and equality in the courts, and equal access to justice. To learn more about NAWJ, our programs, and how to participate as a member or support our mission, please visit www.nawj.org. Thank you for listening. My name is Brandi Mueller, and I'm a criminal trial court judge in Austin, Texas. Welcome to our podcast on COVID-19 and the criminal jury trial. Joining me for this podcast are three pioneers, a judge, a prosecutor, and a criminal defense attorney who together accomplished something that only the pandemic would drive us to, a fully virtual jury trial. Let me set the stage for you. On August 11th of this year, 2020, Judge Nicholas Chu, a justice of the peace in Austin, did something that no judge in the United States had ever done. He presided over a criminal trial that was entirely virtual through the now commonly used Zoom application. The fully virtual format from Vordire to Verdict was covered in news stories across the country. The pandemic that has shuttered and even closed courthouses almost everywhere was six months in. What was novel about what happened in Judge Chu's court was not that a court proceeding was conducted by Zoom, but that a jury trial was conducted in this manner. It should be noted that between March, when the pandemic closure started, through the month of August, over 700,000 hours of virtual sentencing, motions hearings, and other virtual proceedings had been logged in by Texas judges, but none involved a jury trial, the most fundamental pillar of our criminal justice system. Texas was not unique in its regular use of virtual proceedings, although a lot of us Texans would like to think so. Courts across the country have had to move many proceedings online, if not all of them. But nonetheless, courts have been cautious in considering jury trials that aren't in person. There are significant concerns on both sides as to whether a trial could be fair in this manner. And in criminal cases, the issue of largest concern is the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution, providing for the right of a criminal defendant to confront witnesses against him or her. Are the requirements of the Confrontation Clause fulfilled by video conference cross-examinations? Some have steadfastly said no. Others strongly disagree. What will you decide as we examine these issues? Thank you so much for joining us. We've got Judge Nick Chu I'd like to welcome to our podcast. Judge Chu, let me ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you will. I'm Judge Nick Chu. I'm the Justice of the Peace for Precinct 5 here in Travis County, Texas. Before that, I was a prosecutor for Travis County, and my court handles civil small claims cases and also traffic ticket cases, along with magistration of higher charge cases here in Travis County. Well, why don't you set the stage for us as far as the case that you're here to talk about? What can you tell us about it? This was, I've been told, is the first criminal jury trial done by video conference. We did this trial back in August of 2020. And what we did was essentially, obviously, the pandemic has caused us to reevaluate how we do jury trials. And one thing that we wanted to see is from the state level and from the judiciary, also from the defense and the prosecutors, to see if we can accomplish a virtual jury trial on a case 
that would be binding and see if this was feasible. And the good news is, is that we tested it out, tried to make sure that everything complied with constitutional requirements, statutory requirements, but also just sensibly our notions of fair play and justice for every side. And good news is we all thought that it went successfully well. Okay. And certainly you and the prosecutors and defense attorneys involved in this case were pioneers in all of this. Can you give us a little bit of context globally, you know, as far as the state of the courthouse in Austin, Texas, where you preside in August of 2020 when the trial took place? The main thing is obviously that COVID-19 numbers have sadly increased in Texas and in Travis County specifically, we had to essentially close down in-person court proceedings starting mid-March of 2020. And so by August, we had been several months into this kind of pandemic posture of doing everything by video conference. The Office of Court Administration, the Texas administrative agency that handles administrative things for the judiciary, provided Zoom accounts for every judge in every court in the state of Texas. Just to give you a perspective, out of the Justice of the Peace or the JPs alone, there are over 800 JPs. So when you mix in county courts, probate courts, and district courts, we're talking about thousands and thousands of Zoom accounts and for courts to do hearings. And in May of that year, Judge Emily Miskell in Collin County, a district court judge, presided over what's called a summary jury trial. That is essentially a non-binding civil jury selection that then gets the rest of the case kind of gets presented to jury in similarly fashion like an arbitration. And that was our first foray in Texas into virtual jury selection. After that, the next step was David Slayton with Office of Court Administration reached out to some judges and were interested in seeing if we could take the next step and do an actual binding jury trial. And we all thought a JP would be a good place to start because it's always good to kind of start small and see if we can amplify that afterwards. So the idea was kind of created in May and June of that year, and we kind of ran with the preparations and we actually had the trial then. And I think we're doing this interview couple months after August 2020, and it doesn't look like anything is better in terms of where we are with the pandemic and reopening in-person proceedings in the courthouse. And so this is something that I think is in the forefront of a lot of judges' minds these days. Right. Certainly it is. Our courthouse has been closed to trials and hearings since the beginning of the pandemic in mid-March, and, and it looks like that will remain the case throughout the months the spring. What can you tell us about the case itself that you tried? What were the allegations? The defendant was accused of speeding a construction zone with workers present. In Texas, if you're alleged to have sped in a construction zone with workers present, you can't do defensive driving. And so pretty much your only options are either to plead guilty or to have a trial. So obviously there wasn't anything to lose from the defendant's perspective in terms of being tried for this case. We reached out to a handful of defendants on our docket to see if any one of them meeting that kind of case criteria were interested in having a trial and she volunteered herself. This is the defendant that you're talking about? Yes, and she agreed to it. 
we had appointed to her a, a defense attorney, Carl Guthrie, with the Texas Poverty Law Project. And we will be hearing from him later, right? Uh-huh. And uh, he volunteered to, to represent her pro bono, and, and the state, represented by Afton Washburn, had agreed that they would try this case as well. And the advantage to this, too, is in Texas, if anybody has the right to appeal de novo to the county court at law, if they disagree with the JP court for any reason. So so the trial could be done from beginning to end again without any penalty, right? Yeah. And so the good news is, is this is kind of like a low risk trial. Obviously, it's not as serious as jailable offense or multi-million dollar litigation, but it was something that kind of forced us to see if we could do it, but also with little risk to the defendant, especially for somebody who was willing to participate. And she wanted to, my understanding was she was a nurse or is a nurse and kind of understood like, hey, you know, it's just good to do these things virtually. And I kind of want to get it resolved as soon as possible anyways. And so she was a good sport about, about having the trial. As far as an agreement from both sides, can you tell us, was there anything in writing that was obtained by either party or yourself as far as waivers? I think the defense had filed a waiver, and I can't remember if it was the state and the defense both signed a waiver, but what we did... We had kind of run through a couple of pretrials to make sure with counsel that everything that we're preparing for this trial was done to everybody's satisfaction in terms of any kind of logistical requirements or statutory or constitutional requirements. But part of that, too, was to just make sure that both sides were willing to do that. And then at the end, on the morning of trial, I kind of do a more formal explanation with the defendant to make sure that that was what she wanted to do. And she said yes, and we kind of proceeded on from there. And what did the evidence in this case consist of? What you would expect for a normal speeding case, there was a video, a ticket, and then some maps and diagrams of the area where she was alleged to speed. And then obviously, normally with a jury trial for a traffic case, the prosecutor and the defense are usually given the file and they prepare like only for a couple of minutes just because of how formulaic some of these trials are. But they had more time, obviously, in this one. So they prepared demonstrative maps and exhibits, pictures of construction zone signs and things like that that they used as well for, for the trial. Was there more than one witness? There was one officer who testified for the state, and the defendant ended up testifying in defense's case in chief. How did you handle the marking, admitting, and publishing of the exhibits? That took a lot of preparation in terms of our pretrials. The state, obviously, in Texas, there is a requirement that the state turn over all the evidence that they have, but there is no reciprocal discovery requirement for defense. And the reason why we picked a criminal case is because we wanted to see what it would look like for a case if there was known evidence and also what... I like to say is surprise evidence, the defense's stuff, if we could contemporaneously enter that in the middle of trial, just like how we would secret document that said that somebody else actually did the crime or something like that. So in other words, you wanted to make sure that the parties had the ability to offer rebuttal evidence during testimony. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so in this instance, the state pre-marked their exhibits 
and we had a file share system. Uh, we use Box. Some folks I know use Dropbox or Google Share, uh, for example, but we use Box and we created essentially two folders. One was called the offer folder and the other was the omitted folder. The offer folder, the state or defense, anybody could enter pre-mark and put into evidence into the offered folder. And then the witness would have access to the offered folder, open it up, and then go through the necessary authentication for the rules of, of evidence. And then if that piece of evidence was omitted, then I would move it from the offer folder into the admitted folder. And the admitted folder, everybody had few access to it, including the jury. But the jury obviously didn't have access to the offered folder. Okay. And how about publishing it? How were the lawyers able to do that once the evidence was admitted? Yeah. Just like any other Zoom hearing, they were able to share their screen and publish it to the jury. Did you follow the typical format for an in-person trial or of an in-person trial, jury selection, strikes for cause, opening, testimony, and other evidence? Yep. And that was really important for us is that we wanted to make sure that everything that we could replicate just like in-person jury trials was done just like that. The only probably substantive difference in how we procedurally did the trial was in a JP case, if anybody's listening from other parts of, of the nation in Texas, we always call it Fort Dyer. I think other people call it jury selection or Fort Dyer. We like to butcher other languages, I guess. And so a Fort Dyer normally in a JP case is 30 minutes long and each side gets 15 minutes to do their thing. And in this instance here, because Zoom only allows for a certain number of video boxes before you have to go on to the next page, we found out that it's easier to do 15 jurors and then all the core participants and then another 15 jurors. We had to break down our board um, tire into two repeatable sections. And I thought that the reason that you did that, because I was one among many here that followed that case, was due to the fact that at the time that you did this trial, the Zoom update had not occurred, allowing for more video screens, more people to log on and have their own window. That was part of it because... One, it didn't allow for so many screens. I think there may be an update now with that. Also, it becomes a little harder to manage. We had 30 jurors check in for this one. So it became hard to manage having 30 people on and then also to make sure that all defense, state, defendant, my court personnel were all on to make sure to go through 30 plus another 10 screens to make sure everybody was there. So so that's an interesting point. So really, the bottom line is whether or not Zoom would allow it, it was more practical for you to divide up your panel, your Vordire panel of 30 into two, just because it was going to be more manageable for all of you on the screen. Yes. You know, from the judge's perspective, we gave more time to both the state and the defense I think I gave them 30 minutes each for each section of Fort Dyer, but the real world consequence of that is obviously as a judge that you're hearing not only just one hour of Fort Dyer, but two hours and that second hour is the exact same Fort Dyer that you heard before. So that was a little bit challenging because, you know, you go from a 
being used to doing 30 minute four tires to, to two hours with all the little transitions that end up taking the whole morning to do the four tire. In addition to the 15 panelists that you had on each of the two four tires that you did for this one case, about how many other people did you need to have on the screen by the time you counted for yourself, the attorneys, for example? Each attorney had a co-counsel, and the reason for that was it's just so much more helpful. Co-counsels, what we found out, were able to look at the screen while the other person is doing four tire, just like how in-person jury selection works. But also, when they were entering evidence, the the co-counsel was able to move things into the admitted folder or into the offered folder or pull up the rebuttal evidence or do all the technical stuff while the lead attorney was able to do the lowering part of it. For the core personnel side, Kelly Thibodeau with the Office of Court Administration, she was our kind of technical director. So if you were listening to that trial, sometimes I would say, hey, Kelly, do this. And she was the person who was moving people into breakout rooms and into different kind of sections or, or muting people or unmuting them or moving them into the waiting room. And that was so that that could free me up, not having to be doing the tech stuff and also the judge stuff. And while the first four dire was taking place, where were the other panelists? In a breakout room? So they were in a breakout room, and I had two clerks and one bailiff on this trial. Usually it only takes one bailiff or one clerk to do a, a JP trial. But the bailiff was there kind of sitting with the other 15 jury members in a breakout room. And her job was essentially to tell everybody, keep your feet on and be close by. I'll tell you when to start getting close to your camera when you're about to go on. And so her job was to do that and to also to answer any questions that came up of, you know, my battery's about to die or I'm having connection issues. And then I had two clerks that were able to help with the check-in process. And that check-in process is kind of whenever the jurors checked in for the day, they were the ones who were making sure that is your screen oriented right? Can you see us? Can you hear us? No, why look do this, do this? And so they were the troubleshooters for the jurors and kind of the educators of showing some of these folks how to mute or unmute their microphones and videos. Because even though it was in August, I mean, for some folks, it's some of them it may have been their first time to interact substantially in a video conference setting. And for some, they're pros at it. You indicated that there were 30 panelists on your voir dire. How many were summoned? 30. Okay, 30 total. Did you have 100% participation? We had 28 show up. And the reason why we summoned 30, 28 showed up, two were excused because they had statutory disqualifications that happens routinely with trials anyways. And so they were excused ahead of time, And but all 28 showed up that were supposed to show up at that time. Was the summoning done any differently than it is normally done with in-person trials? A little bit. Our district clerk, Velva Price, she is the one who's in charge of, and her office is in charge of doing jury summonses and getting the jury will together. What we worked with her on is we had a normal jury pool. These were folks just like nothing special was done to where only people who were technically advanced were selected or anything like that. It was selected just like how we would any 30 trial jurors pre-pandemic. But in between the time of when they got their summons and showing up to court, the district clerk's office and I, we worked on a what's called a tech questionnaire, and we sent those out to the 30 folks to see if we needed to give them any kind of 
hotspot devices or electronic devices for those who don't have internet or who don't have a video conferencing technology. Those got sent out to those 30 members, and then we followed up with them to make sure that they answer the questionnaire. And that was pretty much the substantive difference between. And how were the results of those questionnaires utilized by you? Pretty good. We had four jurors who indicated that they needed iPads with cellular connection on them. And so four indicated that they either needed a device or um, they needed high-speed internet connection. And so we gave four iPads out as loaners. My bailiff, a couple days before the trial, personally hand-delivered or contactless delivered in a safe way to each of these jurors' houses, the um, iPad and all the equipment associated with that. And then from her car and from their porch, she made sure that the jurors were able to connect, feel comfortable with it. And then she left. And and we saw those jurors the next couple of days for the trial. And the amazing part, too, is that one of the jurors with one of those Office of Corps Administration iPads became our foreperson. So it was cool to see the fact that not being knowledgeable with technology or not having access to technology wasn't an inhibitor of what we think as traditional ways of juries participating. This person, I thought if he got on the jury, probably would be the four person just because of how he was carrying himself and just from the way he was talking. It turned out to be true. And so the Office of Court Administration supplied you all with these, I guess, laptops and then the hotspots as well. Is that right? Yeah, they're just iPads with um, cell connections on them. What would you say about how your role was different as a judge in this format? I think the biggest difference is I just felt like I was on the whole time as opposed to being in a normal pre-pandemic trial, in-person trial. I could go in the back into the chambers and kind of relax, but just because everything was kind of being done virtually and everybody was kind of on the whole time through the video lens. I felt like one of those 24-hour news anchors. And definitely I was cognizant of the fact that this being the nation's first criminal jury trial by Zoom, we had a lot of interest in it. I think from the Office of Court Administration, it turned out that they said something like 15,000 viewers through YouTube were watching the live feed. So that was kind of like the biggest difference in the trial. But I think more than anything else, it amplified certain aspects of being a judge in a trial. What I meant by how I thought that your role might be different as a judge in this format is the fact that I I imagine that you had to you had to make sure that jurors were paying attention. You had to watch them in a way that I imagine you didn't do on the bench in an in-person trial. W- would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you have to watch more closely at the jurors because it's not as simple as like Hey, is this juror reading his newspaper or his phone? You got to look at visual clues. During Fort Dyer, there was one uh, juror who, in the very beginning stages, did the classic like look down kind of thing that is a telltale sign of somebody looking at their phone. And we called him out for it. And then that never happened again with anybody. How did that sound? How did you, how did you do that, Judge Chu? Just kind of called out juror number, whatever his jury number was, and say, hey, just as a reminder, don't be looking at any phone device. And if you are, you got to put it away. And after that, nothing happened. And then on break, what we did was, I was a little more specific on break and had every juror on the next set show me their phone and then put it behind them. That was a good way of doing it. That was different. 
And all of the panelists on Vordaer receive specific instructions in advance of Vordaer from you all, right? Yes. What was different in this instance is we usually give these instructions when they show up for jury duty. We sent the instructions out the day before. And then as my clerks were checking in each juror, it takes a lot of time to check in each juror. So we made sure that they had electronic copies of those instructions and they're reading over them as we're doing that check-in. And these are instructions, the ones you're referring to, that tell jurors that they're not to go on social media, for example, they're not to do any kind of individualized research or investigation. Is, yeah. is that what you're referring to? Was there anything in addition to those admonishments that are normally given, or I guess instructions that are normally given that you you needed to add uh, with this format? We modified them so that when we said you always have to have your camera on and you have to be present in your video don't have the TV on or any kind of distractions to make sure you're in a place in your home to where nobody else can listen to your deliberations or you listening to the trial. Make sure that you're cognizant of their battery life and stuff like that. So that was kind of like an adjustment going over the technology stuff. And then most importantly, too, is we had to really emphasize the don't talk to anybody else while you're in this trial instruction, because I think if somebody else was living there or if they're on break, it's very easy for them to say, hey, I'm doing a virtual trial. And so that was something that was was important. And checking in with our jurors afterwards, it was pretty interesting to see the results of that. Yeah. What can you tell us about the results of that? I imagine, you know, during the pandemic with with so many things being shut down, most people were in a home with others. (laughs) Yeah. And it was fascinating because you really got to see how folks were they're in their homes. And there was one lady who had a couple of pets with her, but she felt comfortable and she shared her story with the Office of Court Administration. At first she was like, there's no way they're going to have an in-person jury trial. And then she said, oh, this is going to be kind of interesting that it was a virtual. And then she was like, yeah, it was great. It was comfortable. I felt like I could pay attention. I talked to the jurors afterwards and they said, we probably paid attention more in this because you're just looking at the screen and this witness is looking at you and you're looking at them and there's nowhere else for us to wander around or look at. So we're looking at this guy's face the whole time he's testifying. And it was pretty cool because there's kind of like a social experiment that was unintended. That day, President-elect Joe Biden had announced that Kamala Harris would be his VP nominee. I didn't know about this until the jury was out for deliberation. I scrolled on my phone at the news and obviously that was the big news of the day. And so I kind of mentioned offhandedly to the jury after the deliberation, like, hey, thanks for your participation. And I made a joke about, I'm not sure if this will be big news because Joe Biden announced Senator Harris as the VP nominee, and all of them were shocked by that. And so they acted like they did hear that news. Um, So I see you had delivered that news. In other words, they hadn't scrolled on their phone or learned through television, for example, while the trial was proceeding, that that had taken place. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty cool way of figuring out like, oh, I guess folks didn't really look at social media. They followed the instructions. They didn't talk to anybody and they just sequestered themselves until this trial was over. 
We're going to hear later, Judge Chu, from from Afton Washburn, the prosecutor, and Carl Guthrie, the defense attorney in this case, about what they had to do to prepare for this day outside of how they ordinarily would have. Was there anything, you know, that you can add to that or in answering that question as far as your preparations? And for example, did you do a dry run or even multiple dry runs? Yeah, we had to do a couple of dry runs. We got volunteers. The elected officials in Travis County are very kind to let us borrow some of their staff. And we got 30 volunteers from employees of Travis County that have no inkling or interaction with the court system. And so we acted like they were jurors and we summoned them and gave them the instructions, just like how we gave our instructions to the real jurors. And we wanted to see was there anything in the language of those notices that was off or they didn't know or they didn't expect or did we need to do something different? And we learned a lot from that because these were 30 folks that weren't like us who've been doing Zoom for months and months and knew how all this worked. And then we did a dry run with the um, state and defense attorney on how evidence and testimony were going to be done so that they knew how to enter evidence and how to publish it and also what would we do if we had to do a sidebar and things like that what did you do in the event of a sidebar what we did and what i would do next time is different what we did was we excused everybody into a breakout room and then we would do the sidebar in the main live streamed room but what i would do differently is i would have the attorneys and me go into a breakout room it's easier to move fewer people into a breakout room than it is a larger amount. And the trial was long because these kind of transitional moments of moving people in breakout rooms and things like that take time. And, and Zoom through an update has kind of cured that in, in large parts. Did you utilize the chat mechanism of Zoom at all? No, we made sure that that was deactivated because we were concerned of obviously ex parte communication or inappropriate communication between juror and witnesses or court personnel. So the only way for jurors to communicate was they had the cell phone number of my bailiff. And just like if a juror had an issue, they would talk to the bailiff. That was our way of ensuring that they still had a line of communication to the court. Was the trial recorded? It was. The Office of Court Administration asked us to, uh, obviously, the Texas Constitution has a requirement that trials be open to the public. Because our courthouse is more or less closed for in-person proceedings, the way constitutionally we get to this is we live stream it on YouTube, and then we've now marked that, we've now kind of closed that link, and then now only the Office of Court Administration has that link, so they can use it for judicial training purposes. So to satisfy the open courtroom requirement, it was it was streamed live on YouTube? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then as far as you know, recording the testimony, the court that you preside over is not considered a court of record, so you wouldn't ordinarily have a court reporter present or record a trial. Is that the case? Yeah, and that's why it's not accessible to the public anymore is because there isn't an official recorded testimony like there is in your court, a county court of law or district court case. So that's why it's not for public view anymore. About how long was the trial in, in compared to how long it would have been if you had done it in person, would you say? In-person trials would start at 8.30, and it would be a long trial if it ended by 1 o'clock. This one started at 8.30, and it ended about, I think, 6, 
was when we finally got a verdict. And what was the verdict? She was found guilty of the lesser included of speeding, but not in a construction zone with workers present. So the state won a little bit and the defense won a little bit. And how was sentencing handled? They all decided to go to me for punishment, and I assessed a dollar fine and the court costs. A lot of times after a trial takes place, a lot of the rules no longer apply. The judge will and the lawyers will talk with the jurors. Did that happen in this case? So I talked to the jurors along with um, some representatives of the Office of Court Administration. And then afterwards, we kind of did a debrief with OCA and Afton and Carl were both on that debrief. And so it was really cool to hear not only the jurors' perspectives, but also from both the litigators' perspectives of what they thought the trial meant to them. Right. Absolutely. What about privacy concerns that jurors often have, especially considering the fact that this was broadcast on YouTube? Were there any special rules put in place for that or a way that you chose to handle that issue? Yeah, definitely different procedures. So when we were off camera, off live stream, when we were doing our check-ins, that was the only time we referred to jurors by name. And then we renamed everybody on their videos to their juror number. And we made sure that whenever we were addressing them, we were only addressing them by their number. It seemed a little cold, but I kind of explained it to them that this was so that nobody could say, hey, John Smith, and then start looking them up on Facebook or something like that. So, yeah, the only way is if you're watching live stream, obviously you would see their faces, but not necessarily what their names were or anything like that. It sounds like a lot of work went into this and it was an arduous process for a relatively simple case. Could you see doing this again? Yeah, I think so. Starting, I think, in about October, JP's and municipal courts can only do trials virtually if they wanted to do trials. And that looks like it won't end until the pandemic is over. And then obviously there are some restrictions with some civil cases as well, whether it's county court or district court cases as well. So I would do it again. And I think it's kind of one of those things where we have to do it again, just to make sure that the wheels of justice are moving. And certainly with the practice that you've had, it would be easier the second go around, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting, too. I'm hearing from I've talked to some federal judges in California, some judges in Atlanta and all over, honestly, the nation, because they're thinking about it in their jurisdictions as well. We're at least toying with the idea of some level of doing some of the jury trial virtually. So it's cool to see that judges throughout the nation are kind of working together and collaborating as much as we are now. When you say there's talk of judges doing it on some level, do you mean, for example, just for Dyer, when there's obviously a lot more people involved and much more difficult to social distance? Yeah. Some jurisdictions, I think, are looking at it to just do it for for Dyer, or some jurisdictions also do have to do uh, impaneling similar to for Dyer. So they're thinking about doing the impaneling this way. And then some of them are looking at full-blown trials on the civil level as well. What would you say was the biggest takeaway for you on this, Judge Chu? I think the biggest takeaway for me was that it was great to see that no matter how unique or new something was or a process was, there was a lot of discussion about would jurors show up, would they follow the rules, would they participate? And at the end of the day, what was very clear to me is that Ordinary citizens are always up to the task of answering their call to serve and to do their duty. 
and that regardless of the format, whether it be in-person or virtual, they take their job as a juror very seriously, and they're always willing to serve. Very good. Well, we will leave it on that note. Judge Chu, thank you so much. We'll be talking with Afton Washburn next, and then we will then also follow up with a discussion that I'll have with Defense Counsel Carl Guthrie. Thank you again so much, Judge Chu. Really appreciate you being a pioneer, a trailblazer in all of this, and for the wealth of information that you provided. And now we have Afton Washburn, a court chief and an assistant county attorney in Austin, Texas. And as our listeners already know, Afton, you were the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor who tried the case that we've been talking about with Judge Chu on the online conferencing platform recently. Let me start by asking you to introduce yourself. Tell our listeners a little bit about you. I am Afton Washburn. I'm from Austin. I'm a native Austinite, born and raised here. I went to the University of Texas and have been a prosecutor here in Travis County for goodness, almost 14 years now. And I stick with prosecuting misdemeanor cases. I'm a court chief at the county attorney's office. We handle all misdemeanors, everything from class C speeding tickets on up to class A and B misdemeanors. I would probably call myself a veteran prosecutor. I've tried hundreds of jury trials to a jury to a verdict, been the chief in every single court in our county, handled a lot of different types of cases, everything from prostitution and littering to very complicated uh, multiple pending DWIs that involve blood testing, injuries, accidents, things like that. So I've been around a while. I've seen quite a bit. This was definitely, though, a new experience for me. Okay. We're going to hear from Carl Guthrie, the defense counsel in the case, and I'll be asking him how he prepared differently. I think the same question applies to you. What did you do in advance of the trial that that made your preparation unique? It's interesting because we reserve Class C speeding tickets for, we call them our baby lawyers. So um, the youngest people, the newest members of our office who've never tried a case before tend to try all the Class C trials. So it had been over a decade since I had tried a speeding ticket. So I certainly had to dust off my ability to do that a little bit because Class C tickets are a little bit unique. But to prepare for the online experience, There had to be a lot of practice and preparation because it was a totally unique environment that we'd never been a part of. And I think Judge Chu and Carl would agree that we all wanted to try this virtual jury trial platform. When the pandemic hit, everything went full stop in the courthouse. Nobody was doing anything. And we had a crisis of constitutional rights, if you will. Everyone deserves a jury trial. Everyone deserves a speedy jury trial. But how could we make that happen and make it safe for the entire community when we're all working from home and under quarantine? So we went into the virtual process and researched like what the best way to do it was. And for me personally preparing, I had to practice. We used the Zoom platform, so I had to practice doing a voir dire on Zoom. I had to practice interviewing witnesses on Zoom and how I put up uh, my evidence on Zoom. So that virtual platform, whatever you're using, it's, it's not a familiar environment. I think all of us as attorneys and judges 
are very comfortable jumping up in front of a group of people and talking and getting your point across. But when you're looking at a computer screen to do that, it's a completely different feeling. It, it definitely is something that you have to get used to when you're talking. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Let's start by talking a little bit about Vordire itself. We understand that Vordire or the trial itself, including Vordire, took a lot longer than a trial of that caliber in person would have taken. What can you tell us specifically about Vordire and, and how you felt as far as the length of it and whether you felt that you were able to form the same kind of uh, connections, if you will, in communicating with the individual panelists? Sure. I mean, Vordire is my favorite part of the trial process. It's my one opportunity to really get to know people, set my case. I think and I think you win or lose your trial in Vordire. I've always felt that way in how you create that connection with your jury. So in using a virtual platform, I had to find a way to make a connection with the jury without being in the same room with them. And one of the things that we had to do just because of the capability of the virtual platform is split up our panel. So we had a panel of 30 people that we had made sure they all had access, that they all had an iPad. We gave them an iPad if they needed it. So we had a panel of 30, but we split it up into two sets of 15. So essentially I had to do two different board ayers and I was going to have people on my jury who had heard two different board ayers. And though my outline was the same and the things that I was going to say was the same, Everyone knows Vordire is driven by the answers you get and the responses you hear. So there were two different things that I was working off with the Vordire and two different panels. So I had to make sure that there was a, a cross melding, if you will, to make sure everyone really got what I was trying to say, really understood what the law was, really, un and, and I really understood their thoughts. As far as a connection, that was definitely difficult. I could see people weren't paying attention. Usually when you're in front of someone in a courtroom, if they're not paying attention, you make eye contact and it gets them back on track or you call on them and it gets them back on track. But I, I couldn't really do that because they weren't looking at me and I couldn't do anything to get them to look at me. So I had to use my voice a lot more in Bordeaux to try to make a point and get things across and get people to understand what was being said. And honestly, Vordire was the one thing that I really had to practice. We set up two different practice Vordires with people in our office where I went through and just did the basics of practicing with the virtual platform, muting and unmuting people, getting my screen large enough where they could see what I was trying to share in my PowerPoint, making sure I could see every single little box and how I would be able to identify who they were. I like to call people by Mr. Smith and Miss Jones. I had to figure out how I was going to know whose name was what. Uh, as an anecdote, a challenge to Vordire is the platform we used, you couldn't put people on the screen in a certain order. So it's not like I saw juror one, two, three, four, and five across the top and so on. They were just all randomly on my page. So that was a definite challenge in figuring out who was who. And then at the end of Vordire, when we went to make our strikes, just I'd been doing Vordire for two hours at that point because we had the two panels. Each side got 30 minutes. I couldn't remember things that were said in the very beginning of the first Vordire. So it's imperative that you have a co-counsel that takes really detailed, really good notes more than ever with the virtual platform, just because it's so it's so impersonal and you don't make those, you know, 
personal connections that you make in person. But I also think it's great. Yeah. I'm sorry. Your co-counsel was Assistant County Attorney Jaime Flores. And normally, in an in-person setup, you would be seated right next to him. You might be exchanging notes down during the defendant's or defense attorney's voir dire. You, he might even communicate with you and vice versa during the voir dire. Were you able to do any of that at all? And then also, what was his role? And it should probably be stated that both you and Jaime Flores were both at your own houses in separate places. We are. Yeah, we were, we were both at our own homes. And Jaime and I each had the unique challenge of we both have young kids who were at home homeschooling at the same time we were doing this. There was that challenge of keeping everyone out. And then he was at his house. I was at my house. We utilized everything we could. We were texting each other. We were using instant messaging to get back and forth to each other. Whenever we took a break and went to do strikes, we utilized the breakout room in the virtual platform where we could go and speak to each other and see each other on video. Luckily, we did this trial in August. We had been working from home since March. So we had gotten used to having those conversations electronically and not in person. He certainly couldn't lean over and whisper in my ear. He certainly couldn't write me a note for a question to ask. That got a little awkward at times when he's trying to tell me to do something. I think that would get better with more practice, but you have to utilize every single piece of electronic communication that you have. I had three computer screens up during this trial and one had instant messages and one had the jury in front of me and one had my PowerPoint and what people were seeing. And my husband's a computer programmer and he always has three screens and I usually only just use my one. This was I felt like a gamer while I was doing the Ford Iyer. I had so much technology in front of me. It was really crazy. Let's go back to the fact that you said you had to do Ford Iyer twice. So you had summoned, or the clerk rather, or even Judge Chu's office had summoned a total of 30, if my, my facts are correct. And you all divided those into groups of two groups of 15 and did a, an individual Ford Iyer, both state and defense and the, the judge's portion for each of those two groups. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So initially what happened and what took an inordinate amount of time is the judge checked everybody in and they tested their technology and capabilities. That probably took an hour and a half to go through each individual. Then we broke the panel into two groups of 15. We put one group of 15 in a breakout room to just hang out. And then we took the 15 that we did the first four dire on. The judge granted each side 30 minutes for Vordaer. So I spoke for 30 minutes. Carl spoke for 30 minutes. And then we sent that group out into their breakout room, brought the other group in, and same thing happened. Lather, rinse, repeat. We did the exact same thing again. And now, then I'm going to interrupt for a second, Afton. I learned from Judge Chu that I thought that the reason that you separated the groups into two was because at the time you did this trial, the Zoom update had not happened yet. And so the most that could be in included in a group, this online conferencing platform was 15. And that's no longer the case. Am I right about that? Uh, I That is correct. That's why we did it in two groups of 15. I'm not sure about how many you can get on the online platform now. But we were also limited by the size of a computer screen, and, and we tested it and found, I think at the time you could put up to 20 in a Zoom call, but you couldn't see them all in one page. So we found 15 was our sweet spot where we could see everybody on a page when you put it in grid view. 
I see. And so you and the defense each had 30 minutes to voir dire. Did you find yourself asking the, the panelists less questions than you normally do? Yes, I didn't follow up as much. I didn't do as much looping back and forth. I had very basic information to get through. There's not a whole lot you need to Vordire on with a speeding ticket, but a Vordire that should have taken me 10 or 15 minutes took the full half hour. Just you lose a lot of time in saying, okay, juror number one, can you unmute yourself? Here's your question. But it was really hard to just jump over to another and say, what did you think about that? And loop and follow up. So that was super difficult in using the time. And I think that's what took the full time. It was a lot more complicated. And the challenges for cause, were those done after the both four dyers had been complete or uh, I would imagine so? Yeah, we um, put everybody into a breakout room at that point and we did challenges for cause individually. Luckily, we only had one or two challenges for cause that were pretty obvious. Judge Stewart made it clear going in to the board ire that he wasn't interested in bringing a lot of people back in for challenges for cause. So he wanted us to develop our challenges during the board ire. And I think that was done pretty well by both sides. Okay. Let's talk about the technology. So 30 is a lot of people. It's certainly not as big as a felony of board ire panel, but it that's rather sizable. Tell me about what you all did to make sure that the technology was available for all of the panelists. And then also, did you have a diverse group? I think we did as much as we could to have a diverse group. So the initially, the clerk sent out a letter to all the potential jurors and said, are you available? Are you interested in doing this online? And what is your technology capability? So we had an idea going forward. And we had people who did not have access to the internet did not have any sort of device that they could participate on. So the clerk's office got a grant, or perhaps it was the Office of the Court Administration, I'm not clear on who got it, but they got a grant to get a bunch of iPads, and they took, the bailiff of the court took the iPad out to people who did not have access. It had cellular capability, so they were out there on this, the county-issued iPad, which was pretty locked down. It only had the virtual platform so that they could get on and see what we're doing. But that did create some challenges because we, for instance, had to strike one juror who was on a county-issued iPad because he was way out in the rural part of our county and just wasn't getting a great cellular connection. So he kept freezing up and couldn't see the videos. And so, unfortunately, we had to strike him because he just didn't have the capability to participate in the jury trial. So I think that did affect the diversity a little bit because naturally people who are in different parts of town may not be able to connect and be, you know, actively part of the process where it may be easier for someone who is constantly online and working on a cable internet connection. Let's move to the evidence portion of the trial. There were one, at least one, and maybe two state's witnesses. Is that right? We just had one state's witness, just the arresting officer. I presume that examination of that officer was pretty expected, if you will. Any surprises or anything extra unique about that part of the process? The direct was not, it was pretty standard and straightforward. We did have to do a lot of practice with him. For instance, the initial time I was like, hey, let's do a practice call on this virtual platform. And he was using his cell phone. I was like, oh, that's not going to work. And then he was using his department issued laptop, but he was driving in his car while I was talking to him. I was like, that's not going to work either. 
So we had to find a location. He was on duty when we called him to the stance. We had to find a location for him to stop, get in a room where he was uninterrupted and wasn't being talked to or things like that. So I think he ended up at a church in his district and went in their break room and was able to connect using his laptop. Uh, probably the most difficult part of the direct examination was utilizing evidence and showing evidence to the jury. We had a video that we had to play. We had set up the Box app, it's box.org or box.com, that allowed us to upload evidence in advance and the judge could see it, the defense could see it. And during trial, when I'd ask him questions, he could look at it through that app and be able to authenticate it. So it made for a little bit of clunkiness in using the rules of evidence to get a piece of evidence admitted, but it worked out in the end. He was able to get through it. We were able to even upload evidence on the fly, which was crazy. That was Jaime made that happen for me. So that was really, it, it was a challenge, but it was a good challenge. And you used, uh, is it Box in order to make that happen? What yeah, those- so we were all given accounts to Box and each of the jurors was also given an account so they could access when evidence came in and was admitted, the judge would move it into the folder inbox for the jury to be able to see. That would also allow them during deliberation to view the evidence. Correct. They could. We had their own folder, so anything in that folder they could see. So rather than a jury going back to the jury room and the bailiff bringing the evidence back to them, they just had to open the application and there was their folder full of evidence. And it allowed also anything that didn't come in, we just didn't put it into the jury folder. Did you do anything in advance of the actual evidence phase of the trial to mark the exhibits or to offer their admission to to limit extra waiting time, for example, or surprises? Yeah. As far as admissibility? Yeah. So we set up a clear naming convention so that every single piece of evidence that was offered was named the same. So I think it was like states underscore exhibit one, states underscore exhibit two, and the same with the defense underscore exhibit one. They did not upload any of their as is their right until mid-trial, like when we were cross-examining the witnesses when they put their evidence in. So that's just the capabilities of boxes. They were able to upload that. And I could see it only at that point that they put it in there. One of the funny challenges that came up is I had planned to use a Google map of the area and tried to admit it. And the defense was like, we object. She hasn't you know, authenticated this. She hasn't put it in front of the officer. And so I had to go through the very awkward steps of look at this Google map and get it uploaded. And so that kind of tried to throw me off the rails a little bit. I wish that we'd had more pretrial conferences to really discuss what was coming in and what was not to eliminate some of the, I call them law school objections, where technically you're absolutely right. I need to do it this way, but we're in an unprecedented situation and I don't feel like anyone gets points for law school objections, but it happened. We got through it. Luckily, the technology was there to allow us to authenticate stuff on the fly, like a Google map. Okay. What about charge conference? I presume that there there wasn't um, really much in the way of an objection to the charge in a traffic ticket case like this. If there was a charge conference that involved any kinds of objections, did you have the panel, the, the jury panel, wait in a breakout room while you discussed that? So that is one of the things that we tried to do as much as we could before the actual trial. So we'd had several meetings between me and the defense attorney and the judge 
looking at, we'd written the charge before we ever started the trial. Now, obviously things could come up in the trial that would make us have to change the charge, but we went through what all the objections were gonna be, what the defense attorney was gonna be asking for as far as the charge and things like that. And we did have a quick charge conference where we sent the jury into a breakout room and we just went over everything, uh, made sure it was there was no objection from either side. Uh, we utilized the breakout rooms for the jury a lot. And I think it's important to note that whenever the jury went into the breakout room, we would have a clerk go into the breakout room with them just to make sure that they weren't logging off, looking at cell phones, things like that, which you really can't control when they're working online from out of their own home. So we had to make sure someone was in there watching them. And why did a clerk do that as opposed to a bailiff? Any particular reason for that? I think it was just who we had available to go in there. There is a bailiff. I'm not sure what she was doing. Everyone in Judge Chu's office had a different role. His staff was amazing, but you had people who were managing this breakout room or that breakout room. I think the bailiff may have been in the breakout room with our witnesses. Just everyone had a different role in where they were. We had all breakout rooms were managed by someone from Judge Chu's staff. What about closing argument? Did you were you seated for that? And was there anything unique about you know the way you presented your closing? I was seated. I was sitting at the same desk that I'm sitting now. We made sure we spotlighted in the platform so that I was the full screen. Once again, like in Bordier, the only powerful tool I had was my voice inflection in trying to convey my point to the jury. So I had to choose my words carefully. I had to make them non-complicated and use my voice in being loud and soft and things like that and making sure that my intent and meaning came across. I found it to be a little more challenging and that I'm a pacer. I like to move around the room. I like to, you know, take up the whole well. So I'm sitting here at my desk trying to be animated and be very open about what I'm talking about. And I found myself using my hands a lot, just sitting at the desk and nothing else to do. So something that I don't normally do, which is a lot of hand gesturing, I was doing a lot of hand gesturing. And I think it's just because I was confined to the space that I was. Sounds like a, a long day of sitting, not just for you, but everyone involved, including the jury. Did, did you have breaks throughout, including a lunch break where everyone was permitted to log off? Or how did you, how did you do that? So there were breaks for the jury. No one was permitted to log off. They had to leave their screen up, but like they had a chance to get something to eat or to go to the restroom or things like that. We just had to keep their screens on so we could make sure that they, again, weren't at the office telling everyone what was going on, things like that. The attorneys really didn't get a break just because the breaks were built in like during the Vordier paneling. So like the first Vordier panel got a break while the second Vordier panel went and vice versa. We as attorneys pretty much just went straight through and we knew that was going to happen because we wanted to make sure we got it done within a day. But it was a long day. I... I have never felt like I've worked so hard on a trial in my life. I was completely exhausted at the end. And just when your mind is on that amount of time and you're trying to do something in a new technology and trying to convey things in a different way, it just was, it was a lot. And I think both Jaime and I took an entire you know week to recover before we felt like we could do this again. And I suppose you had to really be cognizant. You couldn't help yourself, but be cognizant of how you appeared. Oh, the, absolutely. The video portion of this. So you needed to make sure, probably more, more so than if you were an actual court, 
Yes. Uh, you're reminded of how you were looking. And so you needed to be poised as you needed to look professional, all those things. Yeah. And this is the sad part that I've often talked about being a woman. I think it mattered even more in how I appeared and how I looked. I think this is a podcast for a bunch of females and they'll understand that oftentimes we are judged on how we look. And really that's all I had to convey via the video is how I looked. And so things like I chose a suit that was a bright color so I would stand out and I made sure my lighting was correct. Things that I talked to my male co-counsel about and he didn't even care about. He's like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, it does matter. People are going to judge me on this. And then from the backgrounds, you don't even think about what's in your background. I got lots of compliments on my study IKEA furniture. Everyone else was using a fake background and that causes weird issues. You pixelate out and it looks awkward. But I decided just to use my regular study and make sure I didn't have anything offensive on my shelves. And everyone said that it looked the best. It looked the most real. It looked the most professional. So I think uh-huh. definitely test out. If you're going to do this, you got to test what you're going to wear. You got to think about how your, your makeup is going to look and how your lighting is going to look because it's not just your words that they're hearing. They're making decisions. Every single juror, even the lawyers, we are looking at what's going on in everyone's homes. You're inviting people into your home. They're getting to see an intimate part of your life. And you just have to make sure that the entire thing that you convey is professional. In a way, I feel like that was a benefit of a virtual jury trial because I could be more human and more personal to the jury. I wasn't just the mean old state prosecutor in the courtroom where everything is intimidating and scary. I was a human in my home with pictures of my family just talking about keeping the state safe. And I think that was actually a benefit to a virtual jury trial because I could be real to people. Let's change gears a bit. Uh, There are a number of signatures that are necessary on the documents that are involved in any criminal court proceeding, a lot of which requires the judge's signature, but also the prosecutors and defense attorney and defendant, for example, waivers, things like that. How were those documents signed? When we shut down in March, we very quickly got very good at using DocuSign and electronic signatures and being able to email things quickly. So we used the DocuSign platform. But we also had to develop a specific waiver for this trial to waive their right to an in-person trial and to consent to the Zoom trial. We felt like that was a very important document to have in this case so that people are fully informed about how this is different and what's happening. And they're willing to sign away their right to confront their witnesses in person. And so we had that separate document. And then there was just a lot of emails flying back and forth throughout the trial, getting signatures, getting things done. And as far as the the Sixth Amendment issue and the defendant's right to appeal, it should probably be said that in the state of Texas, all Class C verdicts can be appealed at a higher court, regardless of any waiver. Would you agree? Yeah, our justice of the peace courts are not courts of record. So anything can be appealed. It goes up into a county court and it's a trial de novo. So you just have the trial again. That's one of the reasons we chose to practice this virtual trial on a class C ticket is it was a really a low stakes case. We knew it could be appealed. We knew there was really nothing to lose. And we really wanted to try this virtual platform and see how it worked and see whether it was something that we could use going forward. 
to answer the crisis in the Constitution that we're having, which is you have a Sixth Amendment to confront your witnesses, and you also have a right to a speedy trial. And, and which one's more important? And how are we going to move forward in a pandemic? You and the defense, as well as the judge, were all of the belief that the verdict would be binding, right? This wasn't a verdict that was by agreement, for example. You believe that the law would allow for the jury's verdict to hold. Yes, we did. And, and we intended uh, for it to hold. Even though they could appeal, we intended for it to be a, a trial that everyone accepted. All right. There's some talk about courts trying to move forward with an in-person jury trial, but because the real difficult part of that is voir dire with so many people in attendance, the talk is that maybe we would move toward having voir dire only being taken up on an online conferencing platform and then have a trial done in person, and particularly on a misdemeanor case in Texas where there, there only is the requirement of, of only six jurors as opposed to 12 or 10, for example. So in a courtroom, you could, uh, in, in many cases, practice social distancing, masks, shields, for example, and allow for enough space, arguably, to conduct an in-person trial but the voir dire is not something unless you have a much larger space that can be done that way. What do you think about the fact that your voir dire was as long as it was, that you felt the need to divide it in two parts for various reasons? How practical do you think it is to think that in the right case, parties could agree to voir dire online? I honestly felt like voir dire was the hardest part in the virtual trial in making it work virtually. I felt evidence was much easier to do virtually. But going forward, we have to figure out new ways of doing things and we have to figure out options for having trials. We can't just not have trials. That's just not going to work. So I don't love the idea of virtual voir dire. I'm an attorney. I'm a prosecutor. I love the theater of the courtroom. I think the personal human connection is very important. But I also recognize that these are unprecedented times. And this isn't a time to just stamp our feet and say we're always going to do it the way we always did it because we can't. We can't do that right now. And so I think that option is an excellent way for us to try to move forward. Is it perfect? No. Is it the best way to do it? No, or we would have been doing it for the last 20 years. But it is a good option to do more than just sit here and do nothing, which is what's happening in most counties. Thank you so much, Afton. Been great talking with you and learning about this unprecedented trial that you had. Thank you again. Thank you. We're here with Carl Guthrie, defense attorney in the case that we've been talking about during this podcast. Thank you so much, Carl, for joining us and let me welcome you to our podcast. Let me start by asking you to introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. My name is Carl Guthrie. I'm a defense attorney in Austin, Texas, and I co-founded a nonprofit organization, a nonprofit law firm called the Texas Poverty Law Project, and we focus on providing direct representation to clients living at or below the poverty line and dealing with issues that stem from that poverty, basically dealing with power imbalances in their lives stemming from that poverty. So we do criminal representation at uh, Class C courts. We also do some eviction representations and consumer protection, that sort of thing. Thank you. And so for listeners that may be in states that don't refer to 
uh, traffic ticket, mostly cases as Class C. What can you tell us about that, yeah. what that means? Good catch. Cut the jargon. So fine-only offenses in Texas, things such as traffic tickets, very small. I think in some states they're called petty misdemeanors. Anything that doesn't involve jail time as a upfront punishment. Finally, offenses are conducted at separate courts. Justice of the peace and municipal courts. Those courts also don't, there's no constitutional provision providing the right to counsel, which is where our organization steps in trying to offer counsel in these cases, because while they don't have jail time up front, they do have some pretty damaging, long-lasting, and significant repercussions for a lot of our clients. Let's turn to the case at hand here. Our audience has already heard about the facts, the fact that this was a traffic ticket that involved speeding in a construction zone. And we've heard from the prosecutor and from the judge who presided over this matter. As defense counsel in this case, what can you tell us about what your client thought about doing a jury trial by video and and if possible, a little bit about the conversation or conversations that you had with her in advance of the trial. So my client had been waiting for a jury trial for over a year at this point. She had herself requested trial twice and just because of various things with court scheduling didn't work out. So by the time we came along, she was, or by the time this opportunity came along, I should say, she was very eager just to have her day in court. She very much wanted her trial to move forward. The waiting and the strain and the not knowing and basically having this $500 ax hanging over her head was something she wasn't interested in continuing. So she was very interested just in, in the possibility of having a trial at all. In her mind, basically the virtual as opposed to a live trial didn't make a whole lot of difference. We put a lot of time and effort into explaining to her the concerns that were held by the legal community, a lot of the concerns that we were hearing, and we explained to her that this is what most people are saying, right? These are a lot of things that people are worried about. They're worried if we can effectively have a trial. They're worried about how a jury is going to be representative. We're worried about whether the Wi-Fi will keep working. They're worried about all these things. We also see these as concerns. We disagreed with most people, I think, in thinking that those concerns should operate as an absolute bar to a jury trial. Like I said, my client was not, she works in the health field and didn't have much time for any arguments that everything had to stop while we waited for things to go back to normal because she was very adamant that this is the new normal and we need to move forward. And we should make it clear that this was her only choice as far as having a trial. In other words, if she wanted to go forward to have this case resolved, to exercise her right to a trial, her only choice at this, at, at that time, and in fact still is the case in Austin, Texas, was to have her trial through this video conferencing method. No courts, or at least no courts in Travis County, were operating in-person trials. Getting back more into what your colleagues in the defense bar what their concerns were, what, what can you tell us as far as some more of the specifics of that? You had mentioned, obviously, the concern that your client might have had that this wasn't going to work, that there would be effort made to you know, start the trial, but maybe there would be glitches or technological issues that would mean that it couldn't continue. And what were some of the others voiced particularly by your brethren in the law? Yeah. As we were going through 
trial prep. And then as we what we looked at the options, we lumped into three, we lumped our concerns into three different buckets, so to speak. We, we outlined what the constitutional concerns were, what the techno, technological concerns were, and then what basically fell into advocacy concerns. The constitutional concerns, the ones that seem to be the rightfully so, maybe the biggest issues for a lot of the defense bar, for a lot of the, I think, the criminal legal world, and then to a lesser extent, the rest of the legal system. And that circled around, like you mentioned, mainly the Sixth Amendment, effective counsel, cross-examination and confrontation, representative juries. A lot of the technology concerns, I think, are pretty obvious. It was just how are we going to make sure that everything keeps going, that everything that we can see everybody, that we can hear everybody, what kind of redundancies do we need in place to make sure that we don't lose something and that we don't lose the client from the trial, that we don't lose myself from the trial. And then a lot of the advocacy concerns tended to fall into just learning how to do things differently. I would say the confrontation issues we were certainly aware of, and we spent a long time thinking about prepping for, working on before the trial. I can say after it's all done that I don't think it was had that much effect. I don't think it made it that much tougher. I think a lot of the confrontation, a lot of the concerns related to the confrontation clause that we hear are really just veiled concerns about advocacy. And I think it's just attorneys not wanting to learn how to do something new or not feeling comfortable learning something new. So let's break that down a little bit. This was a case where the state put on a sheriff's deputy as a witness, and you had the opportunity to obviously cross-examine that witness, but that was done over video conference. Did you feel at all like that was somehow inhibiting, or is there a possibility that you even felt as though you had more strength in examining a witness? It was different. Yeah, I think that we can't avoid that. It was certainly different. I think there are pros and cons. We're not used to it. It's all the tricks we have up our sleeves for cross, for utilizing the physical space, for reading certain aspects of the witness's demeanor. We don't have those tools in our belt as much anymore. We did just a lot of prep. We ran cross-examination many times, trying to figure out what would work. How can we ask these questions? How does that read to a potential juror? How does, what happens if we need to impeach? What happens if we need to bring an exhibit, et cetera, et cetera. I think the pluses are, like you said, in, in our case, we had a sheriff's deputy. He's six inches from his screen all of a sudden. And all my jurors are six inches from their screen. And the only thing they can look at on that screen is him. And they're not sitting in the jury box, maybe behind a juror in front of them who's a foot taller than them, or they don't have a funny angle trying to see around the chair or the witness booth itself isn't so high that it's blocking a view. They can all see his face and he's got nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go when you're just right on that screen. We had a lot of concerns, as I'm sure most people do, about how do we make sure he's not reading something? How do we make sure he's not being coached? How do we make sure, he, how do we make sure he's not cheating? From our end, we just took the same approach that everybody has to take in a live courtroom as well. It's you tell them not to cheat. Rather, we ask the court to tell them not to cheat. And then we trust them to do that. And we request you go for sanctions if there is a problem. We drafted up admonishments that we proposed to the judge on everything from the witness's distance to the camera to making sure that 
he knew perfectly well that he wasn't allowed to have any documents in front of him. Was your client with you in the same office or was your client at a, a different location appearing on Zoom? She was in the same building as me. She was in uh, her own office across the hall, like a different office in the same, different room in the same office. And if you were in trial in person, you would obviously be sitting next to one another at counsel table. And if she wanted to interject during your examination and say something to you, or you had a question for her, likewise, you would be able to be able to communicate with one another. How were you able to communicate if necessary during examination while you're both on camera? We had a separate program open for communication, a separate chat program, so to speak. We didn't want to use the Zoom chat while we were in trial, both out of, I, I think, pretty obvious fears of if something accidentally goes to the wrong person or goes public, and then just the confidentiality. So we just used a, a different program that we had open and were able to communicate that okay. way between the defense team and with her. And that was all stuff. It's a great question. That was stuff that we put time and thought into beforehand as well. Let's get a little more specific on that. The Zoom does allow you to make a private chat and you knew that you could have done that, but you didn't want to risk that that could be released. Exactly. So arrangements to have a separate screen operating on a separate program. Yeah, we just so had a separate computer program, exactly, okay. to communicate a different chat program. Same thing could be affected, I'm sure, by texting your client, but that seems cumbersome. So just having it up there. What about evidence? We heard from a prosecutor that there was body cam evidence, video evidence that was admitted and, and published to the jury. Were there times during that evidence that you felt comfortable communicating with your client and needing or, or and vice versa? And, and if you needed to interject with an objection, for example, you'd be able to do that? Yeah, we were able to keep, obviously, with the criminal case, we had most of the state's proposed evidence beforehand. So that was built in, and like any good trial case, it's built into our trial plan. We've got to know what they're going to introduce anyhow. As far as the, in the heat of the moment, yeah, we were able to communicate both within the defense team and when she was within the defense team with the client as well. The evidence didn't present any real issue, I didn't think. There was a separate, I'm sure y'all might have talked about this, but there was a separate file sharing program that everyone was educated on. There was an admitted or there was an offered folder, an admitted folder, and that way the judge could review something before it was published. The states had been in there previously. Nothing I admitted into evidence was in there previously. I've heard concerns about that too. There was no there, there wasn't a chance of us giving up any of our rights to claiming any burden of production or anything like that doesn't exist. And it didn't affect that at all. We just, we brought evidence in when we wanted to, and it worked pretty easily. Going back to what you said about the defense bar and colleagues of yours and, and some of their concerns and or maybe criticisms of choosing to do a trial in this manner, you didn't really have a choice since there was no in-person trials available. But can you give us some more specifics about other concerns that were made by them? Yeah. So like I said, the confrontation was one of the big ones that we were able to work through, I think, perfectly effectively. And again, I think is really just a veiled advocacy concern from a lot of people. There was a lot, and there still is, a very valid concern to do with representative juries. The digital divide is a real thing. And mm -hmm. it's something we have to address in all these situations. Personally, I think it's the burden or obligation of the court system, the local government, the whatever your local establishment might be to provide that like we had 
to try and bridge that gap. We're still very worried about the digital divide, creating virtual jury pools that don't have community members who are living in poverty or who are living too far away from in rural areas, too far away from the center of the city, who have work obligations or home health care obligations. But our, the reality has been that that is a problem with jury pools today. That was a problem with jury pools a month ago, and it's been a problem with jury pools since our judicial system started. Mm-hmm. Thinking that juries are great and perfect and super representative until virtual trials come along is, it's, it's incorrect. It's wrong. While we definitely don't want to supplant one issue of exclusionary, of just exclusionary politics tied to race, tied to poverty, tied to everything in the world, with another issue being the, the digital divide, it's certainly our position that the digital divide is a much easier problem to overcome based on the fact that we've just never fixed the other ones. We've never been able to do it. And this is an opportunity. And so how did you address the digital divide in this? Uh, in our case, that was done through like I said, through uh, the court administration, through the Office of Court Administration. There was a questionnaire sent out along with the standard jury qualification questionnaire that goes out in every single case, inquiring as to panelists' access to connectivity and access to technology and maybe some tech literacy questions on there. And if everyone didn't have a personal computer with Wi-Fi access, then they were given tablets with hotspots on them. That was one of our concerns going in. It was also a concern that was taken care of without the defense having much to do with it. That was the court system took care of that one. But it made it so that people weren't excluded if they didn't have a computer. People weren't excluded if they didn't have a home Wi-Fi. Now, you know, it was set up to cover those bases. Let me back up a little bit and ask about how the trial was covered in the press and then even locally among your colleagues. It did receive a lot of attention. As I said in my introduction, there were you know, news stories across the country, including the New York Times, that you know, covered the story. It was also covered locally, even on probably criminal defense bar listservs and, and in, in methods like that. Yes, it was. Did you feel like after the trial was over and most people deemed it a success in the sense that it worked, it was long and tedious, we've heard that from the prosecution and I think also from the judge. And there were glitches and there were some difficult mm-hmm. aspects of it, but for the most part, it really worked. Did you see a change in what your colleagues thought about what you did after it was over? No. The concerns before the trial that were being voiced, our responses as the organization and as client advocates, our response was, these are all valid concerns. We don't know if they're going to be right until we try it. We've all got to stop pretending like we're looking in some magic crystal ball. After the fact, I think it's just human nature. I think people saw what they wanted to see. There's certainly one or two. I don't want to sound too doom and gloom about it. There were absolutely responses saying, hey, this didn't go poorly. Maybe this works for this level of cases. Maybe it works for class, again, final in the offenses. It certainly can't work anywhere else. But there were also then a lot of responses saying how we were still effectively burning the Constitution single-handedly and ruining everything and the sky was falling. We didn't really expect much of a change from the general. Mm-hmm. It's And it's an opposition to the response from the broader public as well. 
my response a lot of times has just been, well, thank God that the health sector didn't throw their hands up and try and quit the minute everything went virtual the way a lot of my colleagues are trying to, or else we'd be in dire straits. But I think a lot of the concerns are well-founded. I think they're reasonable. I think people are, human beings are a little afraid of what's unknown. But I don't think that we're, as defense attorneys, I don't think that we're doing the math right anymore. Whether I want to do a trial or live, or whether I want to do a trial live or via video conference isn't really relevant. If my client wants a trial, my job is to give them a trial. And yes, we can weigh the pros and cons and the options, but me just putting my foot down and saying this doesn't happen, it's not appropriate, it's not my job, and it's certainly not looking out for the interests and rights of my clients. What would you say you learned as a result of doing this as a lawyer? It's long. They're not lying. It was long. It was a long day. <laughs> there is a lot of prep. We just have to, we have to relearn stuff, basic stuff. My team and I essentially went through and taught ourselves trial advocacy all the way over from start to finish. We prepped for voir dire. We are, if this is national for voir dire, we prepped for argument. We prepped for examination. Like I said, we prepped for exhibits. We prepped for impeachments. We prepped for everything on how was an exhibit going to get into, how was that going to reflect to the jury? How does all of our trial, all our trial arithmetic change on everything we do? We're visible the entire time. Responses, especially getting into the art of the theater are just different. I learned the tech end. There's a little bit, there's just learning to do. We had redundancies for everything we could think of. We had lighting redundancies. We had sound redundancies. We had microphone. And I just mean multiple options. We had connectivity covered. We had to, you've got to set your stage in a different way than we're used to. We don't have the theater of the courtroom anymore, but we're now on the, I guess, the silver screen of the courtroom. You've got to think about your background. You've got to think about where you're going to see things on your screen, about who's going to see what. You brought it up earlier. The communications between your team is very important. I think it absolutely increases the importance of having a second chair and a third chair and a couple, fifth chair, just a lot of help with all that. It's nothing that will take as long the second time or the third time or the fourth time. Is there anything about it that was easier than coming to court and trying a case the old fashioned way? Scheduling might've been something with trying to get more people in one place. We didn't have to worry about the officer showing up late and then getting stuck in the elevator to get upstairs or something. Um, we didn't have to worry about my client managing to get in. It was all, it, that was a lot easier to have people where they were. I think there's a lot of benefits to doing jury selection this way. There's also a lot of hiccups. There's a lot that needs to be figured out. And I think that it's like you mentioned earlier, it was the only way to do it. And I don't think we can brush that off. I don't think stopping trials until everyone's comfortable is an option and neither is my client. And if this is the only way to do it, we've got an obligation to figure out how. The jury trial itself, specifically in a Class C traffic ticket or any misdemeanor in, in our state, Texas, only requires six people on the jury. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the courtrooms in Texas could accommodate a jury of six with attorneys, defendant, judge, court reporter, and still manage to social distance at six feet apart. But in paneling and, and the voir dire, which often has 
upwards of 25 people, even on a misdemeanor case, I think you all summoned 30 or so. Mm. And in felonies, there can often be as many as 75 plus summoned. That's where the real problem is going to be as far as or during the pandemic, when you have that many people together in a small space. And we just don't have the spaces unless we were to to look outside of the courthouse to accommodate. There is talk about moving simply the impanelment process, the voir dire uh, online. Do you think that members of the defense bar would still have the same kinds of criticisms regarding the Sixth Amendment if simply the voir dire was done by video conference and not the trial itself? Yeah, I think the criticisms will be there. Whether they're still valid is another question. I'm not going to be optimistic about the complaints mm-hmm. stopping anytime soon. I think it presents a different issue. I don't think we can really honestly say that having a jury panel, having jury selection in a stadium where everyone is sitting 30, 40, 50 feet apart behind masks and face shields is at all more conducive to intelligent jury selection than having people on their via video chat on their couch at home. I think there's a lot of benefits there that we need to look at, but that only solves so many of the problems because beyond, like you said, beyond the the jury selection phase, I think the compliance will be the same. Mr. Guthrie, we're so glad to have had you today. Is there anything that you want to add that our listeners might want to know? No, I, I think I've managed to get my whole soapbox out there. I think it's just very important that we as a legal sector just remember that we've got an obligation to keep the wheels turning and that figuring it out is a better choice than just throwing our hands up and quitting. And that tends to be the most vulnerable that suffer when the system shuts down. Well put. Thank you so much and congratulations for being a trailblazer. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much to our podcast guests, Judge Nicholas Chu, Prosecutor Afton Washburn, and Defense Counsel Carl Guthrie. I'd like to close by offering a few words of summation. After hearing from all three of our guests, it's clear that there are a number of both basic and complex issues to consider in deciding whether to do a jury trial virtually. Our featured defense counsel, Mr. Guthrie, said that what his client really wanted was simply the ability to exercise her constitutional right to a jury trial. Having the option of a jury trial period was what was more important than anything. It outweighed concerns of technical problems, fairness, and advocacy. Since the state was not allowing jury trials to be conducted in person, a virtual trial was the only path. She didn't want the case hanging over her head any longer. Mr. Guthrie also brought to light some of the more complex issues related to fairness concerns in a virtual trial. Constitutional issues of effective representation, confrontation, and having a jury poll that is representative of the community, they were all part of the equation. He indicated that although his work was considered a success and many congratulated him for it, and I can attest to that, Some of his fellow defense attorneys were critical of trials by video conference. Some felt very strongly that he couldn't advocate for his client effectively simply by video. The technical concerns of simply making it all work, although challenging, seemed to pale in comparison to the concerns raised regarding obtaining a representative jury pool, the digital divide, for example. Since the interviews for this podcast were done, it's been 10 months since the pandemic began. 
the shutdowns. The rates of COVID-19 have continued to spike and the number of hospitalizations to swell. Until the vaccines are delivered, it would seem that there would be more virtual trials in our future, or at least virtual voir dyers. But is this true? Perhaps not. Let me end this podcast with a quote from a federal judge in my state, the Honorable Judge Rodney Gilstrap, who said, Jury trials are innately human experiences. Most is often communicated in the courtroom non-verbally than verbal. Such a human experience must allow for the look and feel of direct human interaction. Remote, sterile, and disjoined reality of virtual proceedings cannot at present replicate the totality of human experience embodied in and required by our Sixth and Seventh Amendments. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please visit our website at www.nawj.org or our podcast webpage at www.nawj.podbean.com.